All right. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good uh, wherever you are, whenever you are joining us. If you're in here in-house, I love you guys. It is so awesome to be able to look out and see live faces. And so I want to encourage you at home. We are distancing. We're doing everything we can to keep you safe. I encourage you to join us here live. We've got some chairs. We have a place set aside for you. We'd love to see you here. But for you guys who are here, thank you. Thank you. I love looking out and seeing faces, at least this much of a face. It's difficult. I'm learning a new skill. I know a lot of you guys trying to recognize a person by this much of their face. It can be difficult sometimes, but uh, anyway, glad that you guys are here. Hey, we're going to get right into the message because I feel like God gave me uh, some really good stuff for today. We're in our series called Treasar. As Pastor Gabe said, it's called The 12. Treasar just means the 12. It's a Hebrew word. The 12 minor prophets were nearing the end. Zechariah was so much in it that we had to break it apart into several. Uh, next week we'll finish up with Malachi and then into our next series. If you've missed any of them in this series, uh, if you're watching online, whatever platform you're watching us on, you can also go and check out our archives, uh, YouTube, Facebook, or through our website. Uh, and if you're here and if you've missed any, I want to encourage you to go back and check them out because there is so much that these prophets have to say about what's going on in the world today and what has always been going on in the world. And to me, that's one of the things I take away from this whole series. So the things that they talk about from thousands of years ago, the things they were going through are the same things that we go through today. You would say that we never learn our lesson, right? After all that time, we never do. But it just cycles in people. And you'll see in the message today, you just have to be reminded again and again and again. I heard someone say the best teaching that could possibly happen is just to remind someone of what they already know. And we see that over and over in the Bible, how it's just a matter of reminding people what they already know. So let's get into it. Uh, without any more delay, last week, last week we learned this. We learned in a nutshell that religion done just to try to please God is actually not pleasing for God at all. He wants those things to flow out of our heart. And it's certainly not attractive to those who need the gospel the most. Those people who need to hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ, watching someone go through the paces of religion just for show is the opposite of what God wants, and it's not attractive. It's not pleasing to God. It's not attractive to those who need the gospel. And so what we need to do is we need to show joy, cheerfulness, gladness, all the things that are the opposite of what you would think, especially as you're going through a trial, like times now, every single day from the minute our alarm clock goes off to the minute we go to bed, everything is just harder these days than it's ever been. In my lifetime, certainly, you've had to think more, do more. There's more layers of things that you have to do, and it's just been harder. So in the midst of that, in the midst of the worst trials, the worst battles, the worst things that you go through, to be able to go through that and show peace, love, patience, joy, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, to exude the fruits of the Spirit as you're going through those things, that's what's attractive. That's what's going to make people come up to you and say, what is it with you? What's going on with you that allows you to smile and laugh and be joyful and cheerful in the midst of all these things? And then our answer can be, Jesus Christ. That can be our answer. And so that's what, when we look at this, that's exactly where it should be. Because we see God's love, especially in this message that we're going to go through today, God's love for us never changes. No matter what it looks like on the outside, God's love for us and for his people everywhere never changes. But our human nature is to see our circumstances somehow as a reflection of God's love for us. So I want to ask you, does your opinion, if I asked you, does God love you, is that filtered through the way things are going for you right now? 
And if I were to ask you in a day or two or tomorrow or next week when you're in the middle of a storm or something terrible has just happened around you, if I ask you that same question, would your answer be different based on what you're going through at the moment? I think our human nature, a lot of us would be in that place, but we need to know that we can trust in him and his love for us no matter what we're going through. Easier said than done, right? Easier said than done. So if I just start out by asking you this question, do you trust in God? Do you trust him? Do you completely trust him? Or do you just trust him with those things that you can't take care of on your own or that you think you can't? Do you do everything that you can possibly do as a human being? You use every tool in your toolkit, every lifeline that you have. You use up all those things first, and then when you get down to where there's nothing left, do you lift it up to God? Because that's not the definition of trust. If you're in the middle of a storm, we can trust in him until our boat starts taking on water. And then that trust slowly starts to wane, and we slowly start to think, well, maybe if I bail faster, maybe if I had a bigger bucket, maybe if I get more people to help us bail, what if that boat is starting to sink and it's on the way down? Do you still trust in him? I think the answer to that question lies really at its core in our understanding of the sovereignty of God. And when we go into our next series on Job, we're going to talk an awful lot about the sovereignty of God, how you can trust in God's goodness even when you're going under, even when you're trying to tread water as fast as you can and you're still going down. But here's what we know. The sovereignty of God at its core means this. God can and will and has every right to use everything at his disposal in order to get your attention, number one, but then in order to bless others through you. God's covenant of blessing encompasses all people and sometimes allowing us to go through a storm, allowing us to experience hurt and trials and bad things that come our way. Have you ever thought about it this way? It lifts you into a place where you have to trust him. And as long as we're in a place in our lives, in our comfort zone, where we really don't have to trust him that much, things are going pretty good, how many of us are going to grow in our relationship with him? Relationship with him, and most growth happens in a painful way. Now, that's not always fun to think about, but the sovereignty of God means that he wants you to grow into a deeper relationship with him, a deeper reliance on him, and that's not done from a place of comfort. That's done from a place when our apple cart gets tipped over and we have to rely on him. So let's go into it. We're not going to answer all those questions today. Spoiler alert, you're not going to hear the answer to that question today. When we go into Job, we're going to spend some time there, and we're going to dive deep into how we should look at that question. So for today, though, what we do see is the sovereignty of God reflected in what happens here in the words of Zechariah when he is talking about these prophetic images, prophetic visions that he's having, and he's relaying those to the people of Israel. So we're going to see a little bit about how that works. So this is the final section, again, of Zechariah. These are the final two. Scripture calls them oracles, and an oracle just means a burden. It's a burden. God's put this burden on his heart, and he has to get it out. It's not a matter of, you know what I should teach on today? You know what I should go talk to the people about? It's a burden that no matter what you face when you do it, you've got to go get it out. And this is where he is. So this section of his message happens much later in his life. Remember when he started out earlier, he was a much younger man. But now 40 years has gone by. There's a gap of 40 years between the last thing that he taught For us, it's just a week. It was last week. But it's 40 years. It's 40 years later in his life. A lot has happened in those 40 years. It's now about, it's between 470, 480 B.C. is where we find ourselves in space and time right now as we teach through this. 
Um, a lot has happened in the areas outside of him. Persian King Darius, remember Persian King Darius dies in 486 B.C. So Persian King Darius has died, and Xerxes, his son Xerxes, has taken over the rule of the empire. And when I say the rule of the empire, he's a Persian king, but Israel finds itself, or Judah more accurately, finds itself as kind of a, a vassal state living pretty much at the pleasure of the king of Persia. So they're kind of free to do their own thing, but within rules and within treaties that are established by Persia. So they still kind of have that thumb on them. Now, interesting thing here, we see, again, we see Cyrus, and then following King Cyrus, we have another, another king that ruled for a little bit. His name was Cambyses. And then after that, we have Darius. And then after Darius, we have Xerxes. Um, interesting thing here. Let me show you an image really quick. And I show you these things just so that you understand this stuff is real. This stuff isn't being made up. These are actually three different tombs that are found in uh, northern Iran is where they are right now. Okay, northern Iran. These are the tombs. We know that the one in the middle is the king is the tomb of Darius. We know that because there are inscriptions that are still readable that say this is the tomb of Darius. So we're assuming that the ones on the left and the right are either um, Cyrus or Cambyses. Uh, the one on the right we believe is Xerxes. But these are tombs of these Persian kings. Still there. You can still go. Look how giant they are. Little people down in the bottom corner right there. Not theologically important, but I want you to understand. The reason I teach history and show you these things is because I want you to understand this is something real that real people went through. This isn't just something that came out of somebody's creative mind. So, um, again, you can take that down. King Xerxes is in power now. He has, at about this time, has just failed in some of his attempts to go and fight with Greece. Remember the battle at Thermopylae? What else is that known for? Remember the movie The 300? Okay, that's that battle, and he's basically gotten uh, his rear end handed to him uh, in that battle right there. But he's had a number of kind of failures and successes, but overall it hasn't been super successful for him at this point. Side note, this Xerxes is probably, probably the same one if you read the book of Esther and King Ahasuerus. That's probably this Xerxes is just known by a different name at that point. So read the book of Esther if you want to see how that went and the things that he was going through then. But more importantly for our learning here is what Judah's going through. What the, the southern kingdom called Judah, but now from this point on pretty much just known as Israel because the northern kingdom has been dispersed and, and they're gone. So, but they're going through, they're going through a time of relative comfort. Even though the Persian thumb is on them and they're living under these rules, they're kind of being protected by their by, their, uh, by the Persian Empire, really. And so it's kind of a time of relative peace that they're going through. The temple has been finished. The temple was actually finished decades ago. And they're continuing to kind of rebuild their kingdom. Zerubbabel is still the governor. They would call him king, but as far as the Persians are concerned, he's the governor. And this is where we find ourselves. So they have heard the words from various prophets leading up to this, telling them, exhorting them to stay pressed into God, stay focused on what God wants you to do, stay focused on the temple and worshiping properly and avoiding all of the idolatry and the false gods that are going on in the kingdoms around you. Avoid that. Stay focused. Stay focused. But now in this 40-year time span, they've kind of started to drift away again. So let's dig in now, the first oracle. As I said, this teaching today will be divided into the two oracles. So let's go into the first one, the first oracle of Zechariah. It's Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, and it reads like this. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, with Damascus as its resting place. Catch this part. For the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are, on, are toward the Lord. 
and Hamath also, which borders on it, and Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. What he's doing here is he's just pointing out and he's saying, these are the countries. Now remember, this is a prophetic word, okay? So this isn't happening today. This is something that he's prophesying is going to happen in the future. He has no idea how long in the future, but we know this is a prophetic word. <coughs> Excuse me. Hadrach is a city uh, very near the center of Syria. It's either, it's either a suburb or it's right there near the capital of Syria. Remember, this has been Israel's longtime antagonist. Hamath is another major city in that region. Tyre and Sidon are on the other side. They're kind of over on the coast. But what he's talking about here is that the eyes of, of God are on you. You haven't been living properly. You've been irritating us. You've been persecuting us. You've been outright fighting against us. And the Lord will judge you. So this is the word of the Lord against them. That part, remember that part again where it says, for the eyes of men, especially of all tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. We're going to talk about that more in just a minute here. If you move on in Scripture, I'm not going to go deep into it now, but Zechariah chapter 9, verses 3 through 7 really talk in detail about the judgments of God who, that are going to come against these countries and against these cities and regions. And Ashkelon, Gaza, Ashdod, Ekron, and other Philistine fortresses are absolutely going to pay. So, what we know looking back in history in retrospect that they didn't know then is 150 years from this prophecy, Alexander the Great from Greece comes in and fulfills all of these prophecies. And it's interesting how God uses someone like that. Okay? He's not... He, he doesn't worship the God of Israel. He worships multiple gods from Greece. He's a very polytheist, polytheistic guy. Um, but he comes in conquering this region. Somehow, in the midst of basically conquering this entire region, he entirely spares Israel. Now, let me show you a map right here. I don't know how well this map will translate. It's the best one I could get. Top left of the screen is Macedonia, right? That's where Alexander the Great is from. It's basically essentially Greece. Um, and he comes down. You can see the purple line is how he travels in his conquering. He comes down through, passes through the area of Israel on his way down here into Egypt, has some battles in Egypt, turns around, heads back up this direction, and then over on into Syria and, and, and that area over there. What's interesting here, though, is that you can see, though, he travels twice past Israel one way and past Israel the other way. He never goes in and fights and conquers those areas. It's extremely interesting. It's going to be obvious here in just a minute. So why is this? This is why. Listen to this scripture. This is from Zechariah. Remember, 150 years before this happens, okay? So that's, that's in the future. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 8 says this, But I, this is the Lord speaking, but I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns, and no oppressor will pass over them anymore, for now... I have seen with my eyes. So this is the word of the Lord passing this on to Zechariah. And he's talking about they're going to pass by one way, they're going to pass by another. But after that, no one else will pass by there. And this is a prophetic word about the second coming of Christ as well. But this, this idea really, really talks specifically about the sovereignty of God. Let's dig into that part of it just a little bit more before we get back to the rest of the Scripture. And this is how it really speaks to our ability to trust in his purposes. Based on what you see around us shouldn't reflect on whether you trust in the sovereignty of God. So this is how it plays out. Now, a lot of this history that I'm about to share with you actually doesn't come from Scripture. It comes from a historian named Josephus. Josephus wrote... Um, in, in a, around the time of Christ, 
but he was a, a Roman historian. He was a Jew, but he was a Roman historian, and he wrote very accurately about a lot of the historical things. And so from that, we take a lot of what we learn here. Um, so here's what happened. We know that Alexander, as he went down through, as he was conquering Alexander the Macedonian, he actually did visit Jerusalem. But he didn't go through with his army conquering and destroying pretty much like he did all the time. It's 332 B.C. is when this happens, on his way to Egypt. Now, what they would do is as they went through a region, they would fight, they would conquer, and then they would take conscripts or draftees from the area that they went through to fight in their army. They would take supplies, they would plunder, they would do whatever they needed to do. But almost as importantly, they would take soldiers from that region, meaning as they went through, their army actually got stronger rather than the men that they lost. They would replace what they lost and then some, so getting stronger as they went through. As they're traveling through, they're traveling down the coast, and they need supplies. They need supplies. They need men. They need to replenish So what they're going to do is typically what they would do is, well, let's just go into Israel. Let's get supplies in Jerusalem. They knew that there was a big city in there. Let's go in there and get our supplies. So normally what would happen is that the people from Jerusalem or Israel would know that there's this army coming. So they would prepare their defenses. They would a lot of times go out to meet them outside the city. You wouldn't just wait for them to come to your city. You'd meet them out there. The people, though... Of Israel, they don't do that. They don't do that when Alexander's approaching. Why is this? Because they know the scripture. They know the scripture and they trust because God has said, I'm going to use these people as these people come down. And they actually recognize in their minds that Alexander is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And so they don't march out to meet him. Alexander now, interestingly enough, would normally send men or send a a troop in there to do his work. And he decides this instead. I'm going to go by myself. This is the leader of this army, and he decides, I'm just by myself. I'm going to go on in there to Jerusalem. So that's what he does. And this is in part because of a dream that he had. I'll talk to you about that in just a second. But he goes in and demands supplies, demands food, and they say, no, we're not going to give you a food. They knew that, the, again, prophecy that they didn't have to. But here's an interesting thing. As they're meeting, the night before, the very night before Alexander comes in, the high priest of Jerusalem, his name is Jadua or Jadua, he receives a dream in which he is told, I want you to dress like this, wear your finest, wear your crown, wear everything, and You're to bring people with you, but here's how you're to talk to him. Here's how you are to greet him. So he decides he's going to go out and he meets Alexander this way. But Alexander has also had a dream. Now, Alexander had his dream about this encounter before he ever even left Macedonia. We know that. That's documented by Josephus. I'm going to read you this paragraph that talks about this dream, and this was from Alexander's journal that Josephus then is relaying here. So, for I saw this very person in a dream, in this very garment, when I was at Dios in Macedonia, who, that's when he was worshiping in Macedonia, who, when I was considering with myself how I might obtain the dominion of Asia, exhorted me to make no delay, but boldly to pass over the sea thither that he would conduct my army, saying God would guide his army, And would give me dominion over the Persians, that having seen no other in that habit, and now seeing this person in it, okay, this is getting confusing. I'm just going to tell you what this says. When I read this by myself, it made so much more sense. Here's what happened. He's being told, go, go and attack because I will guide your armies. This is what God is telling him. In his mind, it's one of the many gods that he's worshiping. But he's also telling him that when you get there, you're going to see a person dressed exactly like this. He describes to him how this person is going to be dressed. And it says, meet with him, but do not attack them. 
So that's how this happens. Alexander then goes with the high priest. He meets the high priest, and not only does he not attack, does he not take men, does not plunder supplies, he actually goes into the temple with the high priest and offers a sacrifice to the God of Israel, knowing how powerful it is because the high priest comes out. Again, remember, the high priest has been told, this is how you dress, this is what you say, and it exactly matches up with what Alexander was given And so Alexander sees that God's hand is at work. And in this case, it's the God of Israel. So he goes into the temple and he offers sacrifice right there. While he's in the temple offering sacrifice, the high priest brings out the scrolls, the holy scriptures. And he reads them scripture from the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, you can read this, Daniel chapter 8. Read that on your own time. Daniel chapter 8 talks prophetically about this battle between a male goat from the west, which represents prophetically, which represents Greece, battling a ram with two horns, which represents Persia. And Daniel talks about that, and he interprets this dream on on what this means. But the bottom line of that prophetic vision is that Greece triumphs over Persia. Okay, so of course... If you're Alexander and you're hearing the high priest read this scripture from, again, from hundreds of years ago, prophesying that you're going to be victorious, you're feeling pretty good right about now. And he aligns himself with the God of Israel. It's amazing. I wouldn't say that he converted, but he very much understands the power. Now, this this event going through here foreshadows the second advent or the second coming of Christ when When you look at verse 8, when it says, no oppressor shall pass over them anymore, we see that, but that happens after the second coming of Christ. As far as we know, but in their time, they were thinking that they were going to be spared from Alexander. So the next two verses, we're going to move on from that story. That story, I give you that story so that you understand the sovereignty of God, how he can use anything, including invading armies, for his purposes, and his prophecy helps us with that. So that's why we study prophecy, so that we can see those things, and when they occur, not that we can say, I saw that coming, so that we can say, God is good. God has always been good, and no matter what I see around me, it looks terrible. There's an army marching down towards my country, but I know that God is good. Because he has promised that he would take care of us. This is why we study these prophetic words. We have to know that in a storm we can trust God. So again, the next two verses as we go through this speak directly to the first and second coming of Christ. Now, they would not have understood them as clearly, but let me share them with you. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. A lot of you have read this one. Are familiar with it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Many of us have heard that preached and taught from time to time. Usually when you're leading up to Easter or things like that, we talk about this or Christmas, it'll be read. But what a prophetic vision of a coming Savior. And then in the second, in that day Israel will be restored and then some. This is just the very next verses. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. This one I'll just read for you. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Okay, that's where they would put prisoners in a pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners, who have hope. This very day I am declaring that I will restore double to you. That's the second advent of Christ. Everything that has been taken away will be restored and then some. Then the promises the next, for the next chapter and a half, it lays out promises. Read these chapters. Verse 13, I will make you like a warrior's sword. Verse 14, the Lord will appear with them. Verse 15, the Lord of hosts will defend them. Verse 16, and the Lord their God will save them in that day. The second half of verse 16, for they are stones of a crown sparkling in his land. And then chapter 10 just continues. He'll give them showers of rain, verse 1. 
He will make them like his majestic horse in battle, verse 3. Verse 5, they will be as mighty men treading down the enemy. Verse 6, I, the Lord, their God, and I will answer them. I am the Lord, their God, and I will answer them. Promise after promise after promise leading up to chapter 10, verse 12. This one we have on screen. And I will strengthen them in the Lord, and in his name they will walk, declares the Lord. But... But, there's always a but, right? The prophet goes on and he tells them, you're not there yet. That is in that day. But for now, he prophesies that they are not only going to not accept, they're going to outright reject the Messiah when he comes. And chapter 11, as we go into chapter 11, it's kind of a difficult one to interpret. A lot of scholars disagree on what it's really talking about here. Here's my conclusion. It's not important for theology, but this is what I conclude from my studies, that this prophecy is fulfilled in the near term, at least near term for them, in the Romans conquering Israel in the time of Christ. Okay, so have that in your mind kind of as we read this next one. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that a fire may feed on your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen because the glorious trees have been destroyed. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the impenetrable forest has come down. There is a sound of the shepherd's wail, for their glory is ruined. There is a sound of the young lion's roar, for the pride of the Jordan is ruined. Visually now, that's a lot of symbolism and things. The doors of Lebanon are two big mountains through which this invading army is going to pass. They would have understood that at the time. Lebanon, Bashan, and Jordan just represent these various areas, the various regions of Palestine. So he's saying that no area is going to be spared any of this. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 4 to 6, they talk about in really dramatic terms. So again, read uh, chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. Really dramatic terms on how the people of Israel are like lambs being led to slaughter. But not only this, they know it. A lamb knowingly and willingly being led to slaughter because they are so wrapped up in material wealth that they don't care anymore. I know that we're heading towards destruction, but I'm really enjoying my comfortable lifestyle. And they know it, and they continue to walk in. But here's the thing, and this is where it gets difficult theologically here. Because they're taking the Lord's blessing for granted, he withdraws it from them. Now, if you've ever had this question, does God revoke his covenant? Can or will God ever revoke his covenant? That's a difficult question. Let's talk about this. Moving on, Zechariah chapter 11, verse 8. Then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month, for my soul was impatient with them, and their soul was also weary of me. These are not three specific people. They're three specific offices or titles of offices. And he's saying that they are going to be destroyed in one time. The office of prophet, priest, and king are all going to be under attack, and they will not be reunited again until Christ returns. That's symbolically what that means. Zechariah chapter, chapter 11, verse 9. Then I said, I will not pasture you. What is to die? Let it die. And what is to be annihilated? Let it be annihilated. And let those who are left eat one another's flesh. That sounds absolutely terrible, right? However, this really happened. In the Roman siege of Jerusalem uh, in about 70 AD or so, that actually happened. There was cannibalism that they resorted to because they had no food and they were under siege. So here's the, the, going back to my point, do you think God can and will ever revoke his covenant? Let's read this, Zechariah chapter 11, verses 10 through 11. Now this is, again, some symbolism here. I took my staff, favor, he has two staffs, I took my staff favor and cut it in pieces to break my covenant which I had made with all the people. So it was broken on that day. And thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. Afflicted just means those who understand this is God doing this. God is not causing this destruction, but he's removing his hand of favor from them. 
for a time. Now, if that were to happen to you, could you still trust God? Have you ever been in that place where it just feels like God's hand of favor has been removed from you? In this case, this happens because they are outside of God's will. They're still his children, but they have decided to act outside of God's will, outside of where his blessing is. And so he says, the result of this, I'm going to remove my covenant from you. This isn't a permanent thing. We know from Scripture this is not permanent, but this is for a time. In other words, he's going to allow them. You want pain? Okay. You're going to willingly be led to slaughter? Okay. If that's what you want, I will allow you to go through that. And in God's mercy and grace, it's more so than just, I'm going to let you put your hand on the fire and it's going to hurt, and then you'll learn your lesson. The way that God works, there's that aspect for sure, but then there's also this. It will cause them to fall into a deeper relationship with him. It will cause them to realize how badly they need to be back under that covenant blessing. And so it causes a hunger for him. And that's what, that's what God wants. That's all he wants. Father God's love for us never changes, but he will allow us to experience or go through those things outside of his favor if we choose to be there. But the following, following couple of scriptures show the value that they place on the Lord. I need to keep on moving, so bear with me. Zechariah is playing, kind of playing this role here, like in almost in a drama. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, 13. Then I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Where else do we see 30 shekels of silver being paid out? Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. A little sarcasm going on there. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Remember Matthew 27? Matthew 27, then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel. This is talking about Jesus. This is prophecy about the value that they will place in Christ. In other words, they will reject him for 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord goes on to promise them, you're going to get what you ask for. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 16. For behold, I am going to raise up, as a shep- raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, seek the scattered, heal the broken, or sustain the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. This is a promise that's saying, if that's the kind of ruler you want, I'm going to send him to you. And this is the Antichrist. So we see that. The Lord's saying, if that's what you really want and that's what you're clamoring for, I'm going to give you that so you can taste what that's really like. But take heart. Zechariah tells him, take heart. There will be not only blessing but restoration in the day of the Lord. Now, the people here, though, have no idea this frame of events. They have no idea if this is happening next year, 10 years, or 2,000 years in the future. This is why trusting in the Lord is so important. It's not based on a time frame that we can figure out. The second oracle, that was the first oracle. The second one, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Again, just laying out God is sovereign. Now, here's what he says. Jerusalem will be attacked. Jerusalem is going to be attacked by these ravenous nations like lions tearing apart their prey. But the Lord, verse 6 says, ultimately in that day. And in that day is the millennial reign of Christ when Christ returns. But only in that day, when that happens, only until then will their eyes truly be open to see what they have done, to see the one that they have rejected. And this is the result of that. Chapter 12, verse 10. I will, put out, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. So they will look upon me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. Again, 
prophesying about Christ being pierced, but also showing the duality or the, the triune spirit of God. They will pierce him and look upon me. Another topic for another day. Zechariah prophesies again about the second advent of Christ, chapter 13, verses 8 and 9. It will come about in all the land that the two parts will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left, and I will bring the third part through the fire. Go on, read those scriptures. This is the Jewish remnant at the second coming. The 144,000 of the tribes that they talk about, that is these people, again, being prophesied about years Hundreds of years before. Zechariah, or thousands of years, I'm sorry. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Behold, a day is coming when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. He's talking about the final battle. This final battle that will just devastate those defiant Jews. But then after that, the Lord's wrath turns back on to the enemies of Israel. And victory will be complete. Chapter 14, verses 6 through 8. In that day, there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at the evening there will be light, meaning light in the, in the middle of the night, and that happens from the light of Christ. And in that day, living waters will flow out from Jerusalem, half toward the east and half towards the west. In that day. So he's telling them these things are going to happen. God is going to renew his hand, uh, remove his hand of covenant blessing from you because you asked for it, because you wanted it. They may not have said the words, but their actions certainly said, we don't need that. And so here's where we are. As I conclude the message now, think about this. When we become discouraged by our circumstances, it's so easy to start questioning God and start looking for other ways to take care of ourselves. This is exactly what was happening to the nation of Israel. They knew they were God's chosen. They knew it. But their circumstances and what they saw coming their way to and from, for the most part, they decided we either want what's attractive, we want their idolatry, we want their lifestyle, but we still want God's blessing. You can't have both ways. You are God's chosen and you live like it, or you're God's chosen and you don't live like it, and if you choose not to live like it, he will remove his hand of blessing from you. We need to live like it. So again, when we become discouraged by our circumstances, it's really easy to start questioning God. Does he still love me? Is he still good? Is he still sovereign? So questions like this, if he really did love me, why did he allow my pain? If he really does love me, why does he allow me to go through these things? If he really loves everyone on earth, why does he allow pain and suffering and starving? Why does he allow babies to be killed in the womb? Why does he allow these things? Why do bad people prosper at my expense? When we have all these questions... I can't answer all these questions for you. But do you trust in the sovereignty of God? Do you trust that he can and will use the most horrible things in the world that you can possibly imagine, including our pain, to ultimately to bless you? Do you believe that he can and will take those things to pull you in to a deeper relationship with him? To pull you into a place where you recognize how badly you need a savior. This is the sovereignty of God. And our discouragement just comes from a lack of perspective. Do you have an earthly perspective or an eternal one? Of course we have an earthly perspective because that's where we live. And these things come at us every single day. But God has an eternal perspective. And he invites you to share that perspective with him. Through the work of Christ on the cross, he invites you to focus your eyes toward heaven and on him. Not on your earthly surroundings. No matter what they are, no matter how much the storm rages, focus your eyes on him and trust him. The very last verse, and then we'll pray. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9. 
and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name, the only one. In that day, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your everlasting love with us. And Lord, we repent of ever thinking that somehow life will be better outside of what you want for us and not for trusting in what you have for us. Lord, I pray that when we see these things come our direction, those things that cause hurt, that cause pain, that we don't see them as somehow you no longer love us, but that we see them for what they are, and that's an opportunity to press into you, an opportunity to come closer to you. And in some cases, yes, pain severe enough to force us closer to you. Lord, I thank you that your heart is for us and not against us. I thank you for your everlasting love and that you sent your son Jesus so that we could share in that love. Father, help us to trust you in the midst of a storm. Help us to trust you in the midst of good times, but always to see your sovereign hand upon us. Lord, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for Jesus, and in his name we pray. Amen. If you're at home or you're here with us now, we're going to take communion now. Very quickly, I know I've gone long. The Lord had a a burden on my heart to teach that. So I thank you for bearing with us. Take the body of Christ. The body broken. Here it's just a wafer, whatever you have at home. It's hard to look at that and connect that with the broken body of Christ, sacrificed and given for you. But think about Christ on the cross, broken and in pain, and still thinking more about you than about his circumstances. Take the body. The blood of Christ is the new covenant. The new covenant not to be withdrawn ever. Thank you, Jesus, that based on our behavior and on our circumstances, the love of God, the new covenant in Christ never to be withdrawn again. And if you accept that covenant, take the blood. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the blessings that we get to enjoy in this day. Amen. Thank you, church. Be
hand has held me all this way. Old and gray, and all my days are numbered on me. Let it be known, my truth, my joy. Day. 